Hello and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and today I'll be speaking with Jennifer Brooks, the Public Education and Outreach Coordinator from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and she will be sharing Dutch holiday traditions with us. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blauvelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City, New York. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places and a designated New York State Path Through History site. And part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland County with the public. As a private nonprofit institution, not a county or state agency, the Historical Society of Rockland County depends on charitable contributions to fulfill its education and preservation mission. We hope you will consider making a financial contribution. You can do that safely online by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org and clicking the donate button at the top of the landing page. We'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters of the Historical Society of Rockland County. I'd like to alert our listeners that today's show has been pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. And I'd also like to suggest that today's Crossroads program is not intended for small children. So if you have any little ones around, you might want to wait to listen until you can do so with your headphones. At this time, I'd like to welcome Jennifer Brooks, the Public Education and Outreach Coordinator of the Historical Society of Rockland County, to the program. Hello, Jennifer, and thank you for joining me on Crossroads of Rockland History. Hi, Claire. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. So before we begin speaking about Dutch holiday traditions, take a moment and just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Jennifer Brooks. I'm the Public Education and Outreach Coordinator here at the Historical Society. I hold a degree in educational theater. My main focus is arts education. Previously, I was the Coordinator of Public Programs at the Hudson River Museum. I also serve on the board of the Havistraw Brick Museum and Center for Historic Preservation in Havistraw, New York. Um, and having deep family roots in Rockland County myself, I'm very happy to be here at the Historical Society. So when we think about Dutch traditions in Rockland County and the Lower Hudson Valley, we have to begin by understanding Dutch colonists. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so focusing on our region, the Lower Hudson Valley, what is today? New York City, the first European presence in this area was the Dutch. We see the name Havistraw, which is Dutch for oat straw, appear as early as 1616 on a Dutch map. And Henry Hudson, of course, first arrived in 1609. So that's only seven years after the first Dutch ship sailed up the river. So Dutch settlers who had settled in New Amsterdam, which of course becomes New York, moved up the Hudson River, right? Yes, they settled all the way in present-day Albany, which at the time was called Rensselaer. Uh, the common Dutch ancestor of our Blauvelt family, Garrick Hendrickson, uh, he took that same path. He first settled upstate and then eventually uh, migrated back down to New Amsterdam uh, to own a farm on the island of Manhattan. And many of these families settled here in what we now call Rockland County, but it wasn't always Rockland County, was it? No, it was not always Rockland. Originally, it was Orange County, which Rockland split from in 1798, and this area was settled through various patents or land grants, which were given to farmers from New York City in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. 
Um, and the name Orange County itself is named after the Dutch royal family, the House of Orange Nassau. I believe the Dutch would pronounce that Oranya. So let's start by talking about St. Nicholas, also known, of course, as Sinterklaas. And I love that scene in Miracle on 34th Street that includes a young Dutch girl. It fits perfectly into this discussion, doesn't it? I know it does. It's interesting because, you know, the film which culminates with Kris Kringle being put on trial for fraud, you know, the ultimate proof, at least for this girl, that he is who he says he is, is that he can speak to her in Dutch. Say thank you, Santa Claus. Thank you. Bye. Merry Christmas. Well, young lady, and what's your name? I'm sorry she doesn't speak English. She's Dutch. She just came over. She's been living in an orphan's home in Rotterdam ever since. Well, we've adopted her. I told her you wouldn't be able to speak to her. But when she saw you in the parade yesterday, she said you were Santa Claus, as she calls you. And you could talk to her. Well, I didn't know what to do. Hello. Ik ben blij dat je gekomen bent. Oh, Ben Santa Claus. Yes, I guess Ik wist het wel. Ik was zeker dat u het zou begrijpen. Natuurlijk. Zeg maar wat je zou willen hebben, Ben Sinterklaas. Niks. Ik heb van alles. Ik wil alleen maar bij deze lieve dame zijn. <laughs> wil je wat woord mee zingen? Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef het in mijn schoentje, geef het in mijn laarsje. Dank u Sinterklaasje. Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef wat in mijn schoentje, geef wat in mijn laarsje. Dank je Sinterklaasje. <laughs> That's great. Miracle on 34th Street is such a quintessential American film being set in New York and on Thanksgiving. So the inclusion of that little aspect of the Dutch history is, you know, so charming and I think really special. So so what does all this have to do with religion? So, of course, St. Nicholas, um, when he was born in the third, fourth century, he was a priest. So priests, of course, this is a this is a time when Catholicism was the only sect of Christianity so early on. Um, So he's through the miracles that he performed, he's eventually canonized and becomes a saint. So the early St. Nicholas was always associated with Catholicism, with that religious aspect. It wasn't secular at all. You were, when you celebrated St. Nicholas, you were celebrating his feast day. Saints have feast days. And in Catholic tradition, you celebrate saints on their feast days. So through all of, you know, as time passes, somewhere in the 12th, 13th century, we start to see nuns uh, celebrating his feast day by leaving gifts for children in their shoes. So it was always originally a religious holiday, but because it was such a a family-centered celebration, it started becoming uh, so embedded in family traditions as well. So much so that by the time that the Protestant Reformation came around, uh, St. Nicholas was one of the only saints that Europe did not want to give up because, of course, the Protestant Reformation outlaws celebrating any type of saint, sees it as, you know, idolatry. So St. Nick was the one that people really, really couldn't let go of, so much so that the Protestant Reformation invented a way to uh, satiate that urge to celebrate on St. Nicholas's feast day by instead introducing it as celebrating the Christ child or or which is where we get Kris Kringle from. Yeah, so St. Nicholas was considered 
the patron saint of children, right? Yes. St. Nicholas was one of the most popular saints in Europe. So his patronage is a, is a long, long list, which kind of everything, if you name it, he's the patron saint of it. But included in that list, he is the patron saint of children. Um, and through the years, the legend of gift giving was attached to, you know, all of the stories and miracles attributed to him. Uh, so that's where we also have that tradition evolve into leaving gifts for children on his feast day. And the day that we celebrate St. Nicholas, is this the date of his birth? It's his feast day, which if you were to ask a a scholar or any type of historian, it would be the day of his death, uh, which makes sense because as a prominent priest by the end of his life, that would have been accurately recorded. Um, And in the Netherlands, they celebrate his feast day, not on the day, but on the eve. So they celebrate on December 5th. Ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. So- St. Nicholas, when he lived way before Victorian England, way before uh, the Dutch were here. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the origin of this of the St. Nicholas. A lot of where this saint became tradition, it overlaps with the Protestant Reformation, which was a big deal in Europe at the time. So of course, the Dutch age of exploration also overlaps with that. So we have many Dutch settlers leaving that unrest in Europe. Um, taking along with them their Catholic customs, which include St. Nicholas. Uh, During the Protestant Reformation in Europe, celebrating saints would have been forbidden. St. Nicholas's feast day was just such a popular family tradition. It was starting to take on secular overtones, certainly by the 19th century, which when we focus on the Blauvelt family celebrating St. Nicholas Day. Um, And then the name Chris Kringle is actually an anglicized pronunciation of Christ kindling, which was the Protestant tactic of shifting the celebration, which was very, very popular in Europe, away from the saint, St. Nicholas, to the Christ child. Uh, So that's where we get that overlap of Kris Kringle and St. Nicholas, both being Santa Claus. St. Nicholas Day probably would have been celebrated here in the lower Hudson Valley, right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, that Dutch tradition was very important. Christmas Day would have been more of a somber day. So St. Nicholas was the that beginning holiday in December was the day where, you know, you'd give the gifts, leave the shoes by the door, hang the stocking by the fire. Uh, St. Nicholas would visit on his, his the eve of his, his feast day with his white horse. You would bake letter cakes. That was a tradition on the day. The Dutch would bake letter cakes. Each child would have their initial baked with this, you know, sweet cake dough. That's great. So in fact, even though eventually the English would take over from the Dutch in this area, Dutch language and traditions remained in our area quite a bit longer than most people recognize. Yeah, due to the way that Rockland was settled, the timeline of the, you know, Dutch losing control of New Amsterdam, the colony in the 1660s, and then the patents beginning to be settled in the 1680s, we have these Dutch farmers who are moving away from this English-controlled colony now, and they're settling Rockland County. And it's it comes like a little enclave because it's mostly the Dutch culture and foodways and, and traditions happening up here in this area. Architecture, you'll see a lot of Dutch architecture in Rockland County and Bergen County that you won't see in in Manhattan any longer. So even though that was at one point, New Amsterdam, the core of Dutch culture, it mostly 
vanished in Manhattan, but remains in Rockland. So when we're thinking about St. Nicholas Day and how St. Nicholas became uh, Santa Claus and how that informs the modern American traditions, all of that started right here in the Lower Hudson Valley. So the Historical Society has celebrated St. Nicholas um, and St. Nicholas Day for decades, right? Yes, we've been celebrating St. Nicholas Day since 1961. So this would be our 61st year. Um, and we celebrate every year with telling the stories and the miracles attributed to St. Nicholas. With uh, We have fresh ginger cream cookies, hot cider. Um, and of course, we have a visit from St. Nicholas himself on his beautiful white horse and he leaves gifts for for our little visitors. So what are the stories that the historical society tells to the children that come for St. Nicholas Day? Talk a little bit about, you know, briefly about those those stories. Yeah, so one of the biggest um biggest stories attributed to St. Nicholas, which is why he's known as uh the this patron saint, the protector of children and a gift giver, is um the story of St. Nicholas and the three daughters, which is one that we tell. We tell it as there is in 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 his city in Greece, there is a poor family. Three daughters want to get married, they can't afford a dowry. So when St. Nicholas comes and leaves. Uh, bags of gold at their window. Of course, the part that we leave out from that story is that they would have been uh, relegated to a life of indecency. Um, but we tell it as, you know, they couldn't marry their their three princes. There's also a story of St. Nicholas that we omit, which was one of his miracles, um, which he, he saved three young boys from being um, sold as pork during a famine. So he kind of, you know, saved them from that, that <laughs> the barrel of brine and, and miraculously brought them back to life, which as you can imagine, we do omit that one from telling yes. the children. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one yeah. to leave out. <laughs> You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Brooks, the Public Education and Outreach Coordinator at the Historical Society of Rockland County. And we are talking about Dutch holiday traditions um, and how we have our American version of the holidays and how that has developed from the Dutch traditions in our area. How did some of these Dutch traditions surrounding Sinterklaas or St. Nicholas morph into what we consider Santa Claus, what we consider the sort of the Americanized version of this? So we can give a lot of credit to Washington Irving, the author known as the father of the short story, uh, he played a big part in keeping these Dutch traditions alive. And he was living and writing in Rhinebeck, right across the river. So um, he was a founding member of the St. Nicholas Society in New York City in the early 19th century. Um, and in one of his books, A History of New York, I think 1809, that was published, which is a satirical account of Dutch rule in New Amsterdam, he imagines St. Nicholas as this protector of the Dutch settlers. So he's, you know, flying over rooftops of New Amsterdam, leaving gifts. And this imagery from this early 19th century book, and this is pre-Dickens too, important to note, this inspired Clement Clark Moore's poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. So that poem, um, which depicts St. Nick as the same Washington Irving did, coming down chimneys, flying, oh, having a fleet of reindeer and his sleigh. Um, this it draws directly from that imagery, but also begins to introduce some elements of Santa Claus that we recognize, like having a round belly, big red cheeks. So 
this is kind of, it, it all comes from this early American literature. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Washington Irving liked the goblins and the elves. It's understandable <laughs> that he would sort of make him elf-like, you know, yes, exactly. And he quite was, jolly old elf. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and he's has his own personal Dutch heritage. So that inspired him to keep that alive. It's important to note that it was an effort to keep the Dutch heritage alive. Right. Exactly. That that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so that does shed, shed some light on the connection between Chris Kringle, St. Nick and Santa Claus. So thank you so much mm -hmm. for sharing that. On Thursday, last Thursday, you presented two programs about Dutch holiday traditions at the Historical Society. Can you talk a little bit about what those programs are and how you develop them? Oh, certainly. So it kind of piggybacked off of the popularity of our St. Nicholas program, which is a family program, and it's aimed towards children, young children. So, you know, in thinking how we could expand our offerings, we developed Dutch holiday traditions, which... Um, it's, you know, aimed for adults, not appropriate for young children. And instead of telling the stories of St. Nicholas, it, it digs into the origins of that. And it digs into the origins of um, our traditions and where the overlap lies. And of course, the overlap lies in Rockland County, which is why it's, you know, so special for us to be able to, to dig into it. So we had our virtual program and we also, for the first time, tried um, an in-person program in which we culminated the program with making pomander oranges. So we had fresh oranges, fresh cloves, and that's of course a traditional, um, you know, Christmas craft oranges were very special. You couldn't just go to ShopRite and pick up an orange. Um, you couldn't just, you know, go to ShopRite and pick up cloves either. So we brought a little bit of those Christmas traditions um, so you could bring them home to your family. That's great. So are there still opportunities to visit the Jacob Lavelt house over the coming weeks? Yes, there are. We offer candlelight tours, our holiday candlelight tours on Sunday evenings. Our last December tours are now sold out, but there's still time to book spots in our January tours on January 8th and 15th in the evenings at five o'clock and 630. If somebody's interested, what could, what can they expect if they attend a candlelight tour? They can expect a trip back in time to the 1830s, which is such a, we, we have such a beautiful, beautiful house, the Jacob Lawvelt house built in 1832. Um, and we have it um, as we've imagined it as it would have been for the Blauvelt family. So in the evenings, the house is lit only by candlelight and by a fire in the hearth. Uh, and we take you through the Blauvelt's family history, uh, what life would have been like for a family like the Blauvelts in the 1830s. Um, and at the end, we offer some holiday music in our uh, beautiful common room and some cookies and hot cider at the end in our uh, old out kitchen. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about the Christmas tree, because if I come to the Blauvelt house, I'm not going to see a Christmas tree, right? So no, explain, explain why that is. So it's um, interesting that in America and in England, both of these modern Christmas celebrations started taking shape around the same time in the 19th century. So while we have Washington Irving in America, we have Charles Dickens and Queen Victoria in England. So Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, was German, and he, as Queen Victoria was, but he brought, uh, he incorporated the his tradition of uh, setting up a Christmas tree in the palace. Uh, now, he didn't invent this tradition. He didn't, you know, wasn't his own 
he's not responsible for it, but he he popularized it. He brought it back. And of course, the royal family's doing it. So everyone wanted to do it. And this trend kind of incorporated itself into um, modern international Christmas traditions. It's always interesting to see how the, the different cultures eventually um, combine and, and, you know, all of this, the great traditions come alive. It's great. Um, but that's why you won't see a Christmas tree in the Jacob Blavelt house. No, you won't. It, we, it's decorated. <laughs> we have beautiful garlands, pine cones, wreaths, uh, but, but no Christmas trees. Yeah. About 10 years, 20 years too early for that. Right. Exactly. So the ginger cream cookies are a fan favorite at all the historical society holiday programs. It must be a popular recipe. I mean, I know I love them. <laughs> oh, it is our homemade St. Nicholas ginger creams. And that's a recipe that we've been using as far as I know, since the 1960s, possibly even earlier. Uh, but it's it's a hard recipe to perfect. So we have the recipe cards here. You could pick one up. You could try your hand at it, but you can also count on having a perfectly baked ginger cream cookie at our <laughs> candlelight tours. Yeah, they really are delicious. So how do people find out more about the um, candlelight tours if they wanted to be a part of it? The best way is to visit us at rocklandhistory.org. You can purchase tickets for our candlelight tours right on our Eventbrite. Uh, you can also give us a call at 845-634-9629, and we'd be happy to help you book over the phone as well. That's great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Jennifer Brooks for joining me on Crossroads of Rockland History to discuss Dutch holiday traditions. Thank you so much, Claire, and happy holidays. Thank you, and same to you. Please keep in mind that everything we talked about today and a recording of this broadcast will be available on our website at rocklandhistory.org. In addition, you can find this episode and many others as podcasts on all major podcast platforms, as well as on rocklandhistory.org. And we'll be back next month, next year, as a matter of fact, on Monday, January 16th. And I hope you will tune in then. Please visit us at the History Center in New City. The exhibition Uniquely Rockland, featuring holiday treasures from the permanent collection of the Historical Society of Rockland County, is on view now. And as Jennifer mentioned, Candlelight Tours will be taking place in January. And so you can find out all about those two things on our website at rocklandhistory.org. Another great way to find out about what's making history in Rockland County is to follow us on Facebook, where we have a growing group of friends and fans. You can also find us tweeting on Twitter, blogging on Tumblr, posting on Instagram, and even on TikTok. On behalf of the Historical Society of Rockland County, I wish you a very happy holiday season and a very happy new year. I'm Claire Sheridan, and thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Historical Society of Rockland County's website and want to get each new episode of Crossroads of Rockland History delivered to you, download Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, then search for Crossroads of Rockland History and hit subscribe. We release every third Monday of the month. Thanks for listening. Thank you.